So Jesus said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I'm in agreement with the theologians who say this text is probably the most memorized, most embraced, most quoted passage in all of Christianity, the Lord's Prayer. And it's been my great privilege, I was assigned by Dr. McQueen to unpack Matthew chapter 6 and the Lord's Prayer, uh, verses 5 through 13 this morning, and it, it is a great joy. Sometimes he's given me passages that were a little more difficult, but this morning he's given me one that is uh, absolutely breathtaking. So would you take out your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We're in the Sermon on the Mount series called Upside Down. And the reason it's called Upside Down is because as our Lord teaches us through these chapters, the way the world is and the way he teaches us, the way the kingdom of God is, it, we're upside down in this world. And he's trying to turn us right side up. And so while you're turning there, by the way, get your sermon notes out as well. I want to say welcome to everyone who's watching us online and who's streaming. Welcome to the South Campus. I love your building down there and uh, looking forward to seeing more of it in the, in the weeks ahead. Uh, West Campus, blessings to you and especially uh, my sweethearts at the Hive out there. I know you're yelling and screaming for me right now saying, uh, you can do it, Pastor Ted, you can do it, get, get through this. Uh, by the way, if you live in Parker County and you're looking for a traditional worship experience, uh, we meet at 9.15 every Sunday morning in the student building called The Hive. So you're welcome and welcome to everyone who's worshiping with us this morning. Throughout history, Israel has been known as the most religious nation. It's the most prayer, prayerful nation as well. In fact, it's the praying nation. They were religious, it's said by others, about prayer more so than any other nation in human history. In fact, I came across a quote that in the synagogues, the fathers memorized and the Pharisees and Sadducees memorized. It says this, he who prays within his house surrounds it with a wall that is stronger than iron. And they really believed that. They were religious about prayer, literally, as a nation. But something happened when the exiles took place about 700 B.C. Something happened in the nation. The people of God began to realize that God had turned his ear away from them. And throughout the next 300 years, all the way down to the end of Malachi in the English text, and to the moment in the book of Luke when the angel speaks to Mary that Jesus is coming, that's the first time in 400 years they've heard from God. For 400 years, no matter how much they prayed, God did not hear them. At least he did not respond. And in that period of time, something happened in the nation's psyche. They began to pray differently. They began to approach the whole idea of prayer differently. They changed the way they tried to get God's attention. Um, just saying that makes me realize something interesting. I I am of the age that I remember the rotary phone. There's probably not a person that remembers the rotary phone I, hanging on the wall. Remember that? Anybody remember? And then it went to the very high-tech push-button phone. Remember that? In my kitchen at this very moment, there's a little white box uh, right next to the sink. It's a, an Amazon Echo. Uh, we've come so far, haven't we? From a rotary phone when I was a young man to this thing where I can walk in the kitchen and say... 
Any, anything I want to ask it, it can answer up to millions of questions. Uh, now, the interesting thing about it is you can't just walk in and ask it a question. You have to walk in and address it properly. Alexa, play classic Beatles. Play the classic Beatles for you from 1964. Okay. That's how it responds to me. But you have to be careful because if you walk in and you say, uh, hey, uh, what's Beyonce worth? Silence. If you say, Alexa, what's Beyonce worth? Beyonce's worth $212 million. Wow. It's amazing. When you ask it correctly, when you approach it the right way, it hears you and responds. It hears you and responds. And I hope you're grabbing a hold of that very real life illustration because that's exactly what's happening here when we have the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord's Prayer taught to us. The disciples were aware of the fact that Jesus prayed differently. Why? Because the fact that he went off by himself and prayed? Maybe. But I believe they saw the contrast in how Jesus prayed. Because when Jesus prayed, God heard and answered. And in Luke chapter 11, they actually say to Jesus, Jesus, teach us to pray like you pray. So the ear of God is there. Just like saying, Alexa, we speak to God that way. This text is all about how to approach God so he will hear you. How to approach him so that, in fact, you know he hears you and answers you in his time and his sovereign way. And so take out your sermon notes. I want to work you through how Jesus teaches us to pray so we know he hears us. We know for certain he hears us. In fact, there's a, a few negatives, verses 5 through 8, and then verses 9 through 13, he tells us exactly how to approach him in detail. So look with me at verses 5 through 8, how not to. If you want to pray and not offend God, and by the way, you can pray and offend God. It's very clear in this passage. But if you want to pray and not offend God, what do you do? Two things. First, beware of praying for your image or for self-promotion. Verses 5 and 6. And when you pray, follow along with me in your text or on your notes. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. That tips you off right away. Jesus is speaking to individuals that um, are self-promoting and offensive to God. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. In earlier passage, in full. This is all they're going to get, the applause of men. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who is in secret sees in secret, he will reward you. Interesting, very quickly before we look at this passage, there's quite a contrast in this text between the seen and the unseen, between the physical and, and the spiritual. And you see that juxtaposition throughout what our Lord teaches us here. So beware of praying for your image or for self-promotion. The, the Pharisees were very theatrical, very loud, very boisterous. I call them peacock Pharisees. And Jesus despised them. They offended God when they approached him. The hypocrites require an audience. And by the way, uh, they, they had five steps. The, the typical Pharisee, let's, let's show everyone a Pharisee, a typical Pharisee. There's five steps in their Pharisaical prayers each day. They prayed at 
nine in the morning, at noon, and at three, always in public, unless it's in the synagogue, but then it was in public. They had to stand a certain way. You can't see from uh, the robe he's wearing, but they, so many inches apart, their feet were supposed to be. The way they held their hands was something they were taught. The way they approached God, they're verbose and loud. They, they had interesting long barrages of verbiage about Yahweh, about God, and the, the attempt was to put 16 adjectives before every use of Yahweh. And to understand the people of Israel, these poor, in some ways, beaten down people, see this on the street corners and at the synagogues and out around the temples where that gentleman is, there, that peacock Pharisee. And that's what they saw. In fact, they had a prayer for everything, lightning, exiting the building, entering the building, the city, and so forth. So, so how, how would we avoid that? And Jesus tells us to avoid the tendency. He says right here, go to your room and pray in private. Find a private place to seek God. Leading me to say, every Christian should have a place in your home, in your office, somewhere where you find and seek God. Sometimes more than one place. I have my office. I have two places in our home where I seek him, places I can kneel, places I can sit, places I can read. I've got a lamp there. It's a place where I do my very best to meet God. And we all should have that private place. When I say that, I ask myself the question, so is God, is he against public prayer? Because of the way the Lord prefaces this? When the answer is obviously no. Uh, Paul prayed in public, Peter prayed in public, pastors pray in public. Uh, you know, Dr. Cecil just prayed in public a few moments ago. How, how, what is, what's, what's happening here? Is he really disparaging public prayer? And the answer is no. He's not at all because um, he wants us to realize something, in my opinion. There is a currency in the kingdom of God. And I hope you listen carefully to this. In the kingdom of God, the currencies are this. They're different denominations. Faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hope. Hope for the future. This is how Christians need to live. Faith. Hope. Love, 1 Corinthians 13, to love one another and love God. But there's a fourth and fifth currency. The fourth one is humility. But the fifth one is directly related to what Jesus is saying here. And here it is. Motive. Seldom do we think about motive as Christians. What's my motive for giving that money this morning? What's my motive for prayer? It's his point. If our motive, standing in public, whether it's in a small group whether it's uh, in a Bible study we're leading, whether it's in church, as I said. What's the motive? Is it chapter 5, verse 16, where Jesus says we should do everything to bring glory to God? What's your motive for prayer, publicly or privately? And he's really drawing us out here, asking that question. And, you know, I, I think to myself, in contemporary times, when I look at our lives, my life, your life, we don't really usually stand in public and promote ourselves when it comes to prayer or our spiritual life, do we? Well, what about Facebook? What about those hundreds of Facebook notices that we get or send out where there's a hot cup of coffee and there's a Bible and sometimes your hand's right there in the screen <laughs> and you send it out to 6,000 people but you only know one of them. 
and you ask yourself the question, well, what's my motive? Motive is the currency of the kingdom of God. That really addresses it right here. Motive is the currency. By the way, in case you're beating up on yourself about motive, which I do every week, listen to the men and women in the, in the history of our faith who really wrestled with their prayer life and motive. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Martin Luther, E.M. Bounds, Hudson Taylor, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, A.W. Tozer, Peter Marshall, Billy Graham, John R.W. Stott. Great men and also great women have wrestled with motive, but motive is the currency of the kingdom of God. And as Christians, sometimes I think we forget that. Why am I doing that? Is it for God's glory or is it for moi? And that's to our Lord's point. Point two, B, beware of the counterfeit prayers and meaningless repetitions. He says in verse seven and eight, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Too many words, beads, incantations, all kinds of religious wheels and things like that. In fact, when I read this passage, the first thing I think of, and you all know this great Old Testament story where Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. Remember that story? Uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. And so Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal, these pagan prophets, 450 of them. And they have a sacrifice they kill. And he says to them, you pray to your God. And if fire comes down from heaven and consumes this sacrifice, then he is the true God. So for one solid day, from morning until noon, 450 prophets prayed and babbled and wrenched their necks and their backs around the sacrifice. And by noon, Elijah comes out and says, so where's your God? Is he relieving himself? Is he on vacation? Where's your God? And it made them so angry, they prayed from noon until dark, cutting themselves and babbling and praying to no avail, to nothing. Beware of counterfeit prayers and meaningless repetition. How, how do we... How do we get around that? Well, he says here, to avoid that tendency, be brief and focused. But just be brief and focused. Pretty simple, isn't it? It's not rocket science here. I love it that he says he knows your needs. You know, it's interesting. The Lord knows our needs even before we ask them. He never, he never walks into the end of a long, hard day and looks at your life and says, good night, nurse. I had no idea you were in that much trouble. Where have I been? Why haven't I helped you? Never. He knows your needs. The Father knows what you need even before you ask. So ask directly. Ask naturally. Approach him that way. In studying for this passage, I asked myself the question, what are some of the most meaningful prayers I've ever heard? And you know what they are? They're men and women who are fresh in the faith. They just trusted Jesus. Those are the best prayers I've ever heard. Uh, I harken back to years ago when I was a student minister, and there was, we had this uh, every summer in August, we had a youth camp down to Aquila, Texas, a place called Latham Springs. And in August, last week of August, it's hotter than H-E double hockey sticks down there. And in fact, it's neat to talk about hell because you're so close to I mean, about heaven because you're so close to hell there. It's so hot. And there's no air conditioners and 
So I remember real, well, real, real clearly, Carl was a young man. He was a junior in high school. And after the Thursday night meeting, and this is an old outdoor tabernacle with no air, as I said, and fans and concrete floors and benches and so uncomfortable. And Carl came up to me and said, Ted, I, I want to talk to you. I said, sure. And he said, I think I want to talk about Jesus. So I said, well, let's go outside. We went out and sat on the edge of the tabernacle on the concrete in a shadow. And I said, so what do you want to talk about? He said, well, I, I really want to be saved from my sins. And I said, okay, why don't you talk to God? And, and you know what he said? He said, okay. And he bowed his head and put his hands together. This is a junior in high school. And this is the best prayer I've ever heard. He said, Jesus, this is Carl. Save me. That was a prayer. This is Carl. Save me. By the way, the scripture never says that we have what a place or time that we need to spend with him. It just never says that at all. Or Jesus never says that. And I guess this is a good time for me to do true confession if I have a moment to do this. Um, I have three grandchildren. Seven, Alice, five, Sylvie, and then a little uh, son who was two yesterday, uh, or today actually, he's two, uh, little Miles. And our grandgirls live across the street from us, so they eat with us pretty often. And over the years, grand, they call me Poppy, granddad's not been, a, not been a good spiritual leader. And the fact that at the meals, we always pray. And a couple of years ago, whenever we'd all bow our heads, I'd steal french fries off their, their plate. I'm confessing. I, I'm confessing this. I'm getting it off my chest. It's been a long time coming, but now I can get this. But obviously, they don't see it until they w w look. And so then, for a couple of months, every time we'd pray together, they'd have their eyes watching me. <laughs> Is Poppy going to steal my French fries? And now, when we pray, they steal my French fries. And so my wife, the matriarch of the whole family, has finally come to the conclusion to avoid all of this mess and stop contaminating our prayer time, we're going to hold hands so nobody can steal anybody's meal. <laughs> True confession. I just had to get that off my chest. I haven't been a good grandfather in that sense. So anyway, this is the negative part our Lord proclaims to us. He says this, if you want to pray and not offend God, beware of praying to your own benefit, and also beware of counterfeit prayers and meaningless repetition. And then he says, okay, so what do we do? And here's what we do. Look with me at verse 9 through 13. He says, if you want to pray a God-honoring prayer, note, do it this way. And by the way, this is really not the Lord's prayer. It's the disciples' prayer. He's teaching us to pray. A, pray directly to God and address who he is. Verses 9 and 10. Pray then like this. Our Father... By the way, the term father there means relationship. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed is really a strange word. We're not totally sure what it means other than it is holy, but sanctified, set apart. Set apart is your name. I think of the Ten Commandments. Never disrespect the name of God. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And two Two things I think he points out here. First, we should come to him in adoration and respect, understanding that he is the only true God. Beloved, this world is full of gods. Everyone in Washington has a God. Everyone in the byways and highways of your life has a God. But is it the one true God? 
who's from heaven. Yahweh, the covenant God. As I said, I think this is commandment number one of the Ten Commandments. Unrestrained eagerness when you come into the presence of the Lord. So you find your place that's alone and you close the door as Jesus said in the first few verses and you're alone now and you come to him and say, Holy Father, creator of the universe, you run this universe. Honor and glory and exaltation belongs to you. You're God and I'm not. That's what he means. You're God and I'm not. You're worthy of all glory. Your name is to be honored. Second, come desiring that, this, that, that his will be done in your life on the earth above everything else. His will be done. Did you notice he says, your kingdom come, your will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. What's going on in heaven right now? Full submission to the king of glory. Peace, love, joy, happiness, the fruits of the spirit for sure. I believe laughter. Laughter is a part of God's kingdom. I'm certain of that. He's saying, so your will, Lord, be done here on this earth. Your reign that's happening in heaven, may it happen here in, on earth. First in my life, first in my life, your sovereign will for me in my life. I read the other day that uh, many, many pastors believe only 85% of all Christians actually are living in the will of God. There are aspects of our lives, moral issues, obedience issues, we're just outside the will of God. But he's saying pray that you would come under the sovereign will of God and live under that sovereign will. And by the way, this really speaks to missions, doesn't it? When you think about it, he says, pray that whatever's happening in heaven, everyone there's saved, that's for sure, happens here on earth. We, we need to go. We need to tell. We need to proclaim. It's, it's a proclamation for missions. It puts your life in perspective. So I would ask you uh, this morning, watching, uh, are you in the will of God? And his will, first and foremost, is that you know Christ, your Savior, who gave himself fully for you and died for you. This is the will of God, that you know and walk with Jesus. And he has a sovereign direction for your life. Every one of us has a purpose for being here. Are you in that purpose? That's what he says. Pray that. Then he says, B, pray for your needs. Pray for your needs. This is verses 11 and 13, the last three verses both physically and spiritually. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Three things. Obviously, real, they're real simple. Pray for your physical needs. Request provision from God's hand to meet your physical needs just as you would from your own father. Just say, Lord, I, I have these needs. And, you know, this really pushes us to be dependent upon him. And I, I'd ask you this morning, my Christian friends, as I ask my own heart, do I really believe today that God's strong enough and able enough to meet my needs and a whole lot of my wants? I memorized years ago this little incantation, I guess you'd call it. When I work, I work. 
when I pray, he works. I love Psalm 84, 11. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk with him. Almost every day I pray for the Lord to bless me, my family, my friends, and you, even in your sleep. The proverb says he'll do that, even in your sleep. My needs, he ultimately supplies my needs. The breath in your lungs at this moment, he has supplied. He has supplied. Secondly, your spiritual needs. Confess your sins and ask for strength to model the same forgiving spirit in your own life. This is really a a really difficult passage, don't you think? He says, and forgive those who are debtors toward you. In fact, it's so important if you'll drop your eyes in chapter 6 on down to verse 14 and 15. He says this, and if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That is a shock, don't you think? Well, here's what we know for sure. That in Christ we're forgiven of our sins. And my interpretation of this passage is God's very, very serious about us forgiving others. Because you know, He forgave us. One of the most famous passages, parables actually in Matthew, is in Matthew chapter 18, where a king forgives a servant all his trespasses, all the money he owes the king, the king forgives him. And then the servant goes right out into the street and is approached by someone that owes him money and he refuses to forgive that servant. God takes very seriously the reality that he has forgiven us at great cost. And even if we're justified, even if it's the most heinous thing that's ever happened in your life and it's happened for years, he's still calling us to forgive. And here's my take on it. If we don't forgive, he still forgives us, but we never feel like we're forgiven. There's nothing more freeing in my life, beloved, than knowing I'm forgiven when I've erred against others. Don't you agree? When you can say, I I forgive that person, even if I never see them again as long as I live, even if they're dead and gone, I forgive that person so I can be free and feel God's full forgiveness in my life. That's what he's saying. Three, ask for supernatural resistance from your own weaknesses and the evil one. And this is really interesting and a lot of good theological discussion about it, but notice he says, and lead us not into temptation. When you read that, you should first think of Job. The word temptation there also means trial or testing. There are times in our lives when God says, okay, Kitchens, it's time for you to get a little more mature in Jesus. I'm going to put you through this trial. You all know what I mean, don't you? You've been through that in your life. Some relationship, some job situation, some difficult thing. And you know when you look at it, this is God pushing me into this trial to purify me a little bit more. It's a temptation. He said, Lord, if it's possible, hey, I don't want to learn the hard way. I don't want to learn this the hard way. And then, by the way, the enemy, there's real evil in this world. Wouldn't you agree? Really? Satan has come to kill, to steal, and destroy. And you can know anytime the enemy's at work, when you ask yourself, are those three things happening in whatever context, whatever scenario you want to talk about, like, for instance, in our world right now, and there's a war going on. And what's really behind that war? 
powerful individuals in countries, sure, but there's something behind them who's come to kill and to steal and to destroy. Pray against that because, Lord Jesus, I'm just dust. I'm just dust. I can't fight that spiritual battle. No human can, but he can post an angel at the front door of your home or at the back door of your home and protect you from it. So in conclusion, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Did you notice that that little epilogue is actually not in the Lord's Prayer, either here or in Luke chapter 11, where the, the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray. Somewhere in church history, this little epilogue was attached to the Lord's Prayer. And lead us not into temptation, and it comes to the end, the epilogue, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen and amen. And it's all true, and it's all right, but it's really not in the text. And you know what else is not in the text? Have you noticed anything else about this text? When Jesus brings us to a conclusion, did you notice that he says nothing about praying for the state of the world? He says nothing about praying for that person next door to you who has cancer. He says nothing about praying for your grandchildren or praying for college entrance or that exam. Or he says nothing about those small but very important issues in our lives. Why? In fact, the book of James says this, pray for one another, James 5, 16. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, help us through prayer. Paul says in Philippians 4, don't be anxious about anything, but pray for everything. Luke 6 says this, pray for those who hurt you, et cetera, et cetera. And yet Jesus doesn't mention any of those. Why? Beloved, you have just walked down the corridor and through the threshold into the chamber of the living God. That's the Lord's Prayer. This is how you introduce yourself to him. This is what you do to hear, to know that he hears your voice. Are you saying, Pastor Ted, that reaching the heart of God and the ear of God is formulaic? There's just a formula for it? No. Jesus says that. He says that. This is how you do it. Pray then like this. And then you have access to the heart of God and to his ear. Now, how he answers you is up to him and his sovereign will. Sometimes he postpones his response. Sometimes it's immediate. Sometimes he says no. But you know for certain you've heard that he's heard you and that you've been heard, that his ears hear you. He's turned his heart towards you. The Lord's prayer is Heaven teaching us how to enter the threshold of the king's chamber. It's expressing to each of us, each of us citizens of the kingdom, what it takes to enter into the very presence of the almighty God. This is saying, Father God, getting along with him, finding your motive being correct, You want his glory in everything you pray for. And then asking him for those basic things, your needs, spiritual protection, and then you're ready to pray. What is prayer, in fact? It's asking. And you're ready to ask. His heart, his ear hears you. 
in my family uh, when my children were very young. We're always fearful of losing them, especially at Six Flags or in some busy mall. So I taught them a whistle. And the idea was, if they get lost, they whistle this special, unique whistle. I'm not going to do it for you. Um, And I would know where they are. Lost in the crowd? No, you're not. Just whistle. I don't know where you are. Special whistle. And I'll whistle back. The Lord's prayer is the whistle. Lord, here I am. Hear me. Answer my prayers. You know, I cannot imagine preaching on the Lord's Prayer without us taking some time to pray. Could you? So, if this is the entrance into the chamber of the King of Kings, then let's use it. This is a large room, the rooms where you are. If you're viewing online in your home or somewhere where you're more private, that's good. But remember, Motive is the, is the currency of the kingdom of God. Doesn't matter if you're in a crowd, you can still have that private connection to the living God. So would you put down all your books, put down your Bible, put down your papers, and find a very comfortable posture just for a few moments. I want to lead us in a time of approaching the chamber of the King of Kings and asking him for our needs. So would you bow with me? All the campuses, bow with me, would you? Now that we have his ear, let's pray together. Would you first say to him, Lord, in humility and with a calm heart, I confess that you're my father and you're holy. And you're the one true God. And Father, I ask you to work out your perfect will in my life. As it's done in heaven, work it out in my life. Your will be done. And if it's not pleasing to you, Lord God, change it. And then would you say, Lord, give me this day what I truly need. I acknowledge that whatever it is, it comes from you, my Father. Now confess your sins. Forgive me my trespasses, O God. Lord, give me supernatural strength to forgive those who sinned against me. Lord, put a protection around me from the enemy.
Dear Christian brother and sister, at this moment, you have his ear. Ask. Ask for our world. Ask for areas of your life where there's an unsettled lack of peace. What would you want to say to Jesus this morning? Maybe you'd want to say to him, Jesus, it's Carl. Save me. What else is in your heart this morning? When we read about forgiving others, is there someone whose name pops into your heart and mind immediately? And it's so difficult to even think about that person. And yet the strength to forgive is something he desires to give you. Share it with someone. Begin to have them pray with you. For you to really know the forgiveness of God in your life, we must be forgivers. By the testimony of Jesus, the Father this morning is listening. Oh God, for yours is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.